Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. The private automobile defined post-World War II America, liberating the masses from the regimentation of railroad schedules and the limitations of foot transportation. But the left has never liked the motor car, or at least the social changes it brought. Liberated middle-class Americans from core city governments by expanding the suburbs, helped turn renters into homeowners, and lessened public dependence on unionized government workers in city mass transit systems. And so it has always been a target of the radical wing of the left, which seeks every weapon to hand to limit the 20th century freedoms the car offers. Today, my colleague Ken Braun and I welcome Diana Furkett-Roth, the director of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment at the Heritage Foundation, to discuss the Biden administration's war on cars. Uh, Diana, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your work for Heritage? Yes, Michael. I'm director of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment at the Heritage Foundation. I served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Research and Technology at the Transportation Department, and I've also been Chief Economist of the Labor Department, Acting Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy at the Treasury Department, and Chief of Staff of the Council of Economic Advisors. And and listeners might know you from a little viral exchange you had testifying before Senator Sheldon Whitehouse a couple weeks ago. Oh, I just answered his questions. That's all I did. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, how is the Biden administration going after the private automobile and why? Well, it's really interesting, Michael, that they're going after the car. I, I don't know why they are, but they are choosing all kinds of mechanisms to raise car, uh, the, uh, the price of driving. Most recently, the Environmental Protection Agency has rolled out a proposed tailpipe rule that would require 60% of new vehicle sales to be electric in 2030, compared with 6% today. And this ramp up is very severe and is going to take away people's choice of cars. And I have no objection to anyone driving electric cars. I just want to have the choice of an internal combustion engine for myself because I don't want to risk running out of gasoline. And I I have large numbers of children and large amounts of stuff that I like to take around. Yeah. So what's the 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 left would say, you know, why do you need an internal combustion engine? Why do you need a a conventional car? What's the what's the case against uh, any sort of mandate? to use battery electric vehicles? Well, there's basically the three C's, Michael. Cost, convenience, and climate. So gasoline-powered cars are more affordable than their battery-powered equivalents. The electric version, for example, of the base version of the Ford F-150 pickup truck costs an additional $26,000. Plus, the cost of electricity is high in many states and is likely to be rising further due to another EPA rule brought out in May, which would require power plants to sequester 90% of their carbon emissions. That means they have to take 90% of their carbon emissions and put them in the ground or somehow get rid of them. That raises the price of charging these same electric vehicles that the Environmental Protection Agency is mandating with its tailpipe rule. And it's interesting that EPA in its tailpipe rule, its car rule, does not refer to its associated power plant rule. 
and its pad plant rule, when you read it, does not refer to the associated tailpipe rule on cars. So they're doing these two things in parallel, but they haven't really talked about how higher electricity is going to make charging harder for electric car owners and how more electric cars is going to raise the amount of electricity you need. So it's going to make electricity more expensive. So that's the cost side. Then there's the convenience side. One big advantage of a gasoline powered engine is that gas stations are common and that filling up a, a tank of gas takes about five minutes. On the other hand, EVs have to be recharged every 200 to 300 miles and recharging takes 45 minutes to an hour. This is fine if you go on short trips and if you have a charger in your garage and these people are very happy with EVs and I have nothing against anyone buying an EV. Uh, but some people in rural areas uh, are concerned about running out of electricity if they can't find a charging station in rural areas. Well, I mean, I mean, if you have, you know, if you, if you occasionally go on a road trip, I mean, you know, my folks live in, I, I live in Southern Maryland and my folks live in sub, Southeastern Virginia. So that's about 150, 200 miles, which, you know, with a, uh, with a gasoline car, I can get there sometimes even there and back again, no problem. But with a with an electric car, I'd be I'd be crossing my fingers and toes that I'd have the range to make it without having to stop. Well, exactly. Yes. And if you did have to stop, it wouldn't just be five minutes. It would be 45 minutes. That's if no one was in front of you at the charging station. So it can be very, very inconvenient. And imagine if you're driving with your children to South Carolina, for example and you have little children, they don't like being in the car, you certainly don't want to add two or three stops of 45 minutes or an hour each. So they're, uh, so, so they're very yeah. inconvenient. And if you don't have a house with a charging station, say you live in an apartment building and you don't have a parking space inside your apartment, then you have to rely on outside charging stations to be able to recharge your electric vehicle. So that's not convenient either. Well, then there's the third then there's the third C, which is climate, because uh, new batteries in gasoline-powered vehicles don't die in cold weather, and they don't cause the car to, to lose range. But in cold weather, EV batteries uh, can cause the car to lose 20% to 40% of its range. And that's one reason why there's only 510 registered EVs in Wyoming. So, so assume so. So, put it, just to just to put some numbers on that. Assume, for the sake of argument, that your electric vehicle gets two hundred miles. So, you're talking about in cold weather falling down to what, like hundred and sixty miles maximum? Right, exactly. Yes, yes. And plus, you're not supposed to let your EV go below twenty percent or above eighty percent. So, it could be even less. Uh, which is why people in these cold states have very low EV ownership. States like North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Alaska, Wyoming. It's just uh, very, very inconvenient. And also other states where it's cold in the winter. So many people have an EV, also have another car also, like a minivan or an SUV. So that when it's cold or if they have to go on a long trip, they take another one. But for low-income Americans uh, who can't afford an additional car, uh, this does not work out at all. Uh, Ken, you were saying? Oh, I was actually going to ask that very point about the uh, the 
the climate uh, issue. I mean, I live in Michigan where it gets, you know, can get dreadfully cold in the winter and really warm in the summer. So uh, you get kind of burned both ways. I actually looked at an EV when I bought the car I just purchased and it made no practical sense for that reason. And in Michigan, we measure everything by how far it is, not how many miles. So a five minute uh, recharge, i.e. filling up gas is a big difference over 40 minutes. Um, and, you know, another interesting thing about the, the you know, the internal combustion engines have, I think, get rather maligned by these folks. You might, to address this, uh, um, you know, the 20 years ago, I drove a four liter engine that got 200 horsepower. Now I've got a 3.5 liter engine that gets 365 with no loss of gas mileage um and you can obviously get incredible gas mileage out of a lot of these cars these days um why wasn't why wasn't the 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 just incredible improvement in these engines um why is why is no credit given to that plus uh, mike and i've discussed the uh the battery or the um the hybrids can get I know, upwards of 60. Yes, the hybrids are some of the most fuel-efficient cars, uh, and the non-plug-in hybrids means that the battery gets recharged through the actions of the engine, so you never have to stop to recharge, plus you get the benefit of that extra gas mileage. Well, these rules about electric vehicles and a lot of the focus on electric got put in place or started way back in the 1970s when America did not know about vast reserves of oil and natural gas. But now we have these vast reserves of oil and natural gas. We're energy independent when it comes to oil and natural gas, and there's no reason to try to be or, or at least, Or at least we could be if we chose to be. We could be, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, in fact, we are independent. We are a net exporter now of oil and natural gas. Even, even under the current administration? Yeah, yeah, even under the current administration, we are a net exporter. Uh, we do bring in heavy crude from places such as Canada, and then we export refined goods. We refine it in our refineries. North America is the perfect energy production platform because we have refining for the heavy crude, and we also produce light crude, and we produce a lot of natural gas, which raises the question of the United States and the three reasons the United States does not want to be dependent on China and why the United States as a whole should not push for a mandate towards electric vehicles. There's energy independence. We have energy independence now, but China produces almost 80% of the world's batteries and controls a substantial share of the minerals that are used to produce the batteries. And it's unlikely that this production can be moved to the United States because labor, capital, and energy are all less expensive in China. So energy, because they use coal-fired power plants, they're not using these wind turbines or solar panels to generate electricity the way people here want the United States to do. Uh, And then labor, they use slave labor in Xinjiang. They have very low wage rates. They use child labor, so that's lower. And capital is lower because the Chinese government gives favored companies uh, loans and capital at very low rates. So it's very difficult for us to compete with that here. And Russia's cutoff of natural gas to Europe and OPEC's 1970s oil embargo should underscore the need for America to preserve energy independence and keep at least some of our gasoline-powered cars that use our own resources. Um, you and I were on a call earlier this week about a poll on just how um, that 
said 91% of Americans are either very or somewhat concerned that China um, has these EV minerals uh, that are being used for these cars, and 61% would oppose China um, Chinese parts, you know, a ban on chi- Chinese um, inputs into electronic vehicles. That's the American Energy Alliance poll. Um, anything else from that poll strike you as uh, worth noting? Well, people are interested in the economy. They're interested in inflation. That's what they're worried about. They're not so worried about the climate, according to this poll. And they certainly don't want to have to pay more for climate change. And, you know, they're right. America's air is getting cleaner all the time. It's not necessary to ban gasoline-powered cars to lower global temperatures. And it doesn't have uh, much effect on global temperatures. So even if we got rid of all fossil fuels in the United States, that would result in less than two-tenths of one degree Celsius lower in in, in temperature by 2100. It makes no difference. We're imposing trillions of dollars of costs on the economy for no benefit. And Americans can understand this. Moving energy-intensive manufacturing to China just changes the location of where these emissions occur. It doesn't get rid of them completely. The only way to reduce global emissions is to move to cleaner forms of dense energy, such as nuclear energy, and keep our same standard of living, of course. We could, all, of course, go and live in caves and not use any energy, but that would result in a decrease in our standard of living. But if we were really interested in keeping our same standard of living, emissions-free, we would make a lot more use of nuclear power. But many environmentalists are also against the use of nuclear power, which is puzzling to me. <laughs> um, it's yeah, truly yeah. Ken, puzzling Ken, or the sarcasm could, there, yeah. I was going to say Ken could go on about nuclear power for a while well, it's truly <laughs> it, 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 puzzling to me the way people say things and then they obviously don't really believe what they're saying so I actually want to uh, uh, to turn to a, another story very related to uh, you know the questions of electric vehicles that came out this, this and in previous weeks so uh, Ken, there's an ESG angle as well. Uh, what's going on at Toyota? You asking me or her? I'm asking you. <laughs> um, yeah. So the um, touching back with the uh, the, the yeah. dispute between uh, EVs and hybrids, Toyota Motor Company has their CEO has announced, you know, hey, we're we're going to kind of focus on the hybrids rather than the EVs because this makes more economic and engineering sense and energy sense and a whole lot of other things for the reasons we've just discussed. And he's catching a lot of heat for this, um, possibly because the climate folks don't understand the virtues of their own position and that the hybrids actually do reduce energy use. Uh, but maybe also because American labor unions, the UAW in particular, has a real hatred of, uh, and domestically, I mean, American-produced foreign nameplates like Toyota. Yes, although, and, and, although, and part although Sean Fain, who's the president of United Auto Workers, has attacked American politicians for going electric because 3,500 jobs at Stellantis are going to be cut. One of their plants was closed in December. Mm-hmm. So the UAW definitely does not like the ending of their members' jobs and uh, the jobs moving to China for the batteries and electric plants. And if you think about it, people at service stations who now service the gasoline-powered vehicles 
all those jobs are going to end. Those will have to be moved to electricians and auto parts suppliers who now supply gasoline-powered cars, internal combustion engines. Uh, those people are also going to be put out of business. So it has a major effect on jobs. But Toyota has said they're going to continue to sell whatever cars their customers want to buy, which is fine by me because I'm a customer. Uh, and they are getting <laughs> flack for that, which is really amazing. I mean, if Apple were told that it couldn't sell iPhones anymore, uh, they would probably fight back and say, look, our customers want to buy iPhones. But GM, Ford, Stellantis, they're told not to sell gasoline-powered vehicles. They say, fine, we won't sell them by 2035, even though people obviously want to buy them. Because 94% uh, of new car sales last year had some internal combustion engine. And by the way, 72% of car sales last year were used vehicles. And let me tell you, they're not electric vehicles. It's really hard to sell a used electric Yeah, I, 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 I just bought a used vehicle. It was a, a Toyota hybrid. <laughs> yeah, I just bought a used vehicle too. It was a Mercury Grand Marquis 2006. Beautiful car. V8 engine, and 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 on the and on the subject of you know envi of environmental inputs, you know your, a car from 2006 that's still alive has, you know, in many ways a better environmental footprint than a a car than a than a brand new car, even if it's less efficient because of all the inputs that go into making a new car. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And these cars are also very solid, and they withstand accidents very well. In fact, we bought another. 2006 Mercury Grand Marquis because our first one got hit by an 18-wheeler uh, on the uh, close to Delaware Memorial Bridge and all four passengers walked away completely safe without having to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So these large safe cars have something to be said for them. So how is what can Congress do? What can uh, state governments do to respond to what the Biden administration is trying to do to to reduce uh, consumer choice in the car market? Well, Congress could, of course, pass a law saying that EPA is not allowed to use its funds uh, to go forward with this rule. It's also illegal because Congress originally gave the Transportation Department the job of deciding CAFE standards, corporate average fuel economy standards. <laughs> so many people, such as Steve Bradbury, the former general counsel of the Transportation uh, um, Administration, who testified before uh, Congress about a month ago, uh, made the point that it was not legal for EPA to be using a backdoor way to mandate more electric vehicles. So Congress could hold hearings in this and tell EPA not to do that. Of course, Congress won't do that because the Senate is controlled by Democrats. But Representative Andrew Clyde of Georgia uh, has put forward a bill saying that EPA should not use funds for this tailpipe tail rule. So Congress could act by cutting off EPA appropriations, point one. Uh, point two, this rule, wanted... there's comments due on this rule. They're due July 5th. And this is certainly going to be subject to uh, judicial challenge. And people can write in and comment. All our listeners can write in and say what they think is wrong with the rule. And and just to, you know, show that this this isn't going to stop with, you know, these these tailpipe rules. Uh, governing for impact, which is uh, uh, a 
an advocacy group that has been developing regulations uh, that, uh, with an eye towards getting them approved by the by the Biden administration, actually put forward as a policy proposal the outright prohibition on the sale of gasoline. They believe that the I'm pretty sure it's the Clean Air Act authorizes the outright prohibition on the sale of gasoline. Uh, they say don't do it yet, uh, but they they have they have essentially proposed it. So they're trying to follow California rules, and California has banned the sale of gasoline-powered vehicles after 2035. And the Biden administration is trying to mirror what's going on in California, even though this is something Congress would not pass. So because Congress would not pass it as a law, the Environmental Protection Agency is trying to do it by regulation. Can we don't. Um, yeah. Oh, I was the, just going to so, say any final words. <laughs> oh, actually, I was going to ask one quick question, if I could. Go right um, ahead. Regarding California, um, putting all these cars on their electrical grid is obviously going to tax the grid more. Um, and it probably isn't going to be able to handle that if they come even remotely close to succeeding in electrifying their entire vehicle fleet. And a report came out in Doomberg, the with a D as in dog, substack this week about transformers being at a great shortage right now. And one of the re- reasons is one future possibility uh, for trouble is that uh, if you put all these cars charging at night, transformers, those things on the poles are supposed to cycle down at night that extends their life that you can cut the life by 90%. Um, any comments on that? And what, what have you, what are you hearing about that? Transformers are in great shortage, which is apparently one reason that uh, some housing projects have been delayed. It's interesting what California is trying to do. They're trying to do bi-directional charging, which means not only you charge your car up from the grid, but if the grid doesn't have enough energy, it takes the energy from your battery and puts it back into the grid. So you don't even own the charge in your car. You can charge your car. So, so what if you have to go? What if you have to go somewhere? So that's a big problem. <laughs> or what if you get in an accident and an ambulance has to pick you up, or a fire truck and a fire truck can't get into your house, or someone has to be taken to the hospital? If you have to just go to work the next morning or take your child to school, well, too bad. So we not only have to worry about charging the vehicles, we have to worry in California about the state taking the charge out of your vehicle. Unbelievable. All right, uh, Ken, any any final comments? Um, I, I'll defer to uh, Diana for anything she'd like to, we haven't said already. This is a serious threat to the American way of life. The American way of life is that you can go wherever you want in your car. That means if you want to get a job that's an hour away, you can get, you can accept that job. You don't have to worry about public transit going there. You don't have to worry about whether there's charging stations. If you want to get a college degree from someplace that's not nearby, you can drive there. So taking away the people's personal mobility, taking away the ability of people to get to where they want to go in their own vehicles is a serious change to the American way of life. And it's no wonder that Americans are pushing back on it. This is the government trying to take away your car, take away your form of transportation. And let's hope that Americans are smart enough not to fall for it. All right. Well, thanks again to Diana Furkett-Roth of the Heritage Foundation and my colleague Ken Braun for joining us. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. 
Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week. 